Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Is there a right to sex? And if so, whose right is it? These are just some of the questions explored by today's guest, Amiya Srinivasan. She joined us to discuss her new book, The Right to Sex. And in conversation with author of The Personality Brokers, Merva Emre, they explore the politics of desire. It's a really fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Amiya's new book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Marva Emre. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Amiya Srinivasan, the Chichili Professor of Social and Political Theory at All Souls College, Oxford. She's the author of the brilliant new book, The Right to Sex, which is out now, and I'm delighted to be speaking with her. Hi, Amiya. Hi. So when your essay, Who Has the Right to Sex, came out in the London Review of Books in 2018, One of the louder and more agitated responses to it was from feminists who insisted that there simply was no right to sex and that claiming that there was endorsed the point of view of violent incels and rapists. So is there a right to sex? And if there isn't, what is at stake in framing the politics of sexual desire in the language of rights? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that I think there's kind of uncontroversially right to some, there's a certain sense in which there's a right to sex. So, uh, firstly, everyone has a right to have sex with themselves if they want to. It's also w- one way of thinking about part of gay rights and LGBT rights is, has something to do with, you know, the right to have consensual sex, right? With, with consenting, consenting partners and not just with consenting partners, but the sort of sex you want to have with that consenting partner. So it, it's clearly the case that there are, there's a certain sense in which there is a, a right to sex. The difficulty arises when, you know, you're entertaining something like an incel ideology, according to which you as an individual have the right to have sex with people who don't actually want to have sex with you. And it's clear that there is no such 
no such right. I mean, I say it's clear that there is no such right. The fact that it's clear to us is a legacy of LGBT and feminist activism over a, a very long time. But at this point, it's become fairly axiomatic in our sexual culture that you don't need to have sex with anyone who wants to have sex with you. But there's a kind of complicated question in the neighborhood here, which is, look, okay, maybe no one has the right to have sex, but what do we do about the fact that certain people are marginalized or excluded from or excluded from the, the sexual economy or the economy of sexual desire because of kind of problematic political forces, right? So there are certain people who, in virtue of their race or maybe their disability or because they don't conform to some, you know, normative standard of femininity or masculinity are not as, are not seen as sexually desirable or are not seen as high, sufficiently high in a sexual hierarchy to be a, like a worthy object of, of desire and sex. And so, Without saying that those people have a right to be sexually, to, to have sex, to, you know, to be sexually desired by specific people or by anyone, you still want to be able to offer a critique of what's going on there. And it's not enough to say, I think, simply that, well, no one has the right to sex. So what you frame polemically and provocatively, I think, as the right to sex is a way of getting at the politics of desirability or what you call fuckability yes. or unfuckability. So can you say a little bit about how the politics of fuckability is different from the idea that certain people are just inherently more desirable than others? Right. Good. So, I mean, so one thing that looking at, you know, the long history of human sexuality shows us is that who and what and especially what kind of bodies are desired, um, you know, massively changes over time and is, you know, quite culturally contingent and specific. But it also shows that these things are in part like political constructs, right? So think about something like the way that black female sexuality is constructed under, you know, Im imperial and racist rule. So black women are constructed as um, sexually promiscuous, right? So in one sense, all too fuckable, right? Totally available to be had sex with, um, with impunity, but at the same time, not fuckable in the sense of not conferring high status to those who have sex with black women. And you get and you get similar things, you know, across a range of other kind of social oppressive social phenomena. So you see that when in the case of disability, you see that in the politics of masculinity within the gay male community. So the way in which lots of gay men want to have sex with or think that they should be having sex with, you know, what's called like straight passing gay men and they don't want to have sex with. Men. I mean, I say they don't want to have sex with, but I think part of what's interesting here when you're talking about the politics of desire is that it's not really about desire. It's not really about what people do and don't in fact desire and a lot more to do with what people are rewarded for desiring and mm. not desiring. I think those two things can actually come quite wildly apart. Mm. That's interesting. Actually, as you were speaking, it occurred to me that there are subcultures or what the social theorist Michael Warner calls counterpublics. Mm where the politics of fuckability are the reverse of what the politics of fuckability are from dominant yeah. mainstream white masculinized culture. Is that an answer mm. to the imbalance or the inequity of fuckability in dominant culture? Or is that, that insufficient? Mm. I mean, it's an answer and within a context of kind of oppressive dominant sexuality, it can be a 
powerful rejoinder, right? To say, well, in this, in this subculture, you know, like the butch femme, the butch woman is, is really desirable, right? Even as she's going to be like pilloried and, hu- and, and humiliated on sexual grounds in a kind of broader dominant culture. At the same time, as long as we're working within the frame of fuckability, we're working within a frame where like, you know, people get rewarded and punished in terms of status, based on who they are having sex with or not. And you might just think that's bad, mm. right? So, I mean, I, I do, right? Yes. So you, 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 like, it doesn't feel actually fundamentally sexually free when you have a situation where being attractive to certain people and certain bodies and being able to kind of, you know, sexually possess certain bodies, uh, you know, gives, confers more status on you than... Than doing so, I mean, basically, it's 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 an economic logic, right? It's where the 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 body of another person is like a luxury good; it's a status good. Yeah, and we'll I think we'll get back to the question of the intersection of the economic mm. and the sexual a little bit later on in the conversation. One of the things that was really striking to me about the book is how it's persistently looking back to an earlier moment in feminist theory, and particularly, I think, feminist jurisprudence. Mm. So that late 1970s, early 1980s moment when sex is the cornerstone of political and legal understandings of gendered exploitation. And I'm thinking in particular of the work of Catherine McKinnon, who you return to multiple times throughout this book. And at at moments, I wondered if it was almost an inadvertent resurrection or rehabilitation (laughs) of McKinnon. But I guess the broader question is, why return to that moment? And how do you think of those currents in feminist theory as intersecting with either, you know, the neoliberal feminism Mm -hmm. that we see today or socialist and Marxist Mm -hmm. feminism? Yes. Um, I mean, McKinnon plays a very big role in the book. I mean, in part just because as a thinker and a writer, she's just kind of very important to me. She's a very, very powerful feminist thinker and, and writer and, 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 and writes with this kind of extraordinary, uncompromising force and, and has pursued legal change in that same spirit. So she's really interesting for being someone who, you know, not only writes kind of high feminist theory in the seventies and eighties, but also, uh, you know, fundamentally transfigures American sexual harassment law, the law on, of pornography a little less successfully, international law, right? So she's, she spearheads the campaign to make rape a, a crime, uh, like a war crime. So I'm kind of fascinated uh, by her. So, and my, my relationship to her, her work is a, is a deeply ambivalent one. So on one hand, I'm very attracted to her insistence on thinking of sex as a kind of political phenomenon that we can fully subject to political, full-on political critique. And she isn't at all taken with a very kind of contemporary sex positive perspective on which, you know, we simply say, well, people want what they want. We need people's desires and people's sexual practices need to be protected from moral interrogation. That way authoritarianism lies. Now, like she wants to really fully take on a full political critique of sex. And I find that refreshing. And I also find it um, kind of necessary in a way that lots of contemporary instinctively sex positive feminists don't quite realize because contemporary sex positive feminists are also intersectional, right? They, they claim to care and they very often do care a lot about things like the way in which gender intersects, intersects in kind of complicated ways with race and class and disability and so on. 
But if you're really going to take that seriously, if you're going to take questions of race and class and disability seriously when you're thinking about feminism, then one thing you immediately notice is this thing we've already been talking about, which is that, you know, those ugly, oppressive political forces shape the sexual economy. And so they push you towards a kind of political critique of sex. So I think there's this kind of contradiction in contemporary feminism that returning to McKinnon allows us to think about. At the same time, I really don't want to go all the way with McKinnon or all the way with a whole set of feminists from that from that generation who, as you kind of pointed out, are very juridical in their thinking. So they want to call on the power of the law, right? The coercive power of the state to address the problems of sex. So they want to use the law to legislate against pornography. They think of the law as the solution to something like domestic violence. They think more cops on the streets and more men in jail are going, is going to solve the problem of male sexual entitlement and rape. And I just, I don't think that's true. And I also think that all of those so-called solutions come at a very steep price. Um, I mean, the growth of U.S. mass incarceration being being a kind of obvious one. Well, I think where you're most opposed to or most unwilling to think with McKinnon is probably in the essay talking to my students about porn. Mm. And one of the things I noticed is that that essay, along with another essay on not sleeping with your students, are explicitly about pedagogy, which is a kind of through line in this book. And in the first essay, you argue that porn has become pedagogical for the generation below us, right? Mm -hmm. For our students. And you have this amazing moment in that essay where you narrate a student telling you that she wouldn't know how to have sex were it not for porn, that porn serves an instructive purpose, which I think is probably a huge change between Mm. our generation and the generation below us. And then in the second essay on not sleeping with your students, you you argue that instead of sleeping with their students, professor, professors should teach them, which on, which, <laughs> which is, you know, on the one hand, sounds almost glib when right. I put it that way. But on the other hand, opens onto, I think, a really uh, successful critique of the erotics of the classroom. Mm-hmm. And one way we could think about those two essays together is to understand them as investigations of bad pedagogy. Mm. Both of them point to different forms of bad pedagogy. Are there good pedagogies of sex? Mm. Or should we even be thinking of sex as pedagogical? Mm. Oh, what a great question. I mean, so the the first thing I want to say is that the, I, I, well, I love the idea of porn as bad pedagogy because it's intensely didactic. And we're, we're talking, of course, about mainstream porn, the free, free pornography. Um, and the reason we're talking about that is because that's what young people watch because that's what's freely available on the internet, right? So I want to, I want to leave open the possibility, perhaps, that other forms of kind of more creative pornography, queer pornography, feminist pornography could have a kind of different relationship to the pedagogic. But it's true that mainstream porn, both straight and gay, is just intensely didactic. It gives you the same message over and over again. It eroticizes, you know, male domination, female subordination. Sometimes it's inversion, but of course, it's always playing on the, the fundamental background script. And you know, I think Andrea Dworkin, who's, you know, a great uh, comrade of McKinnon's, is, is right when she basically says that it's a form of 
it's something that, you know, deadens the imagination, right? So instead of enlivening it and opening up the sexual imagination, what it does is it dulls it and makes it kind of lazy and, and codified. And that's certainly not what we're trying to do in the classroom, right? We try to do something else. We try and, uh, as teachers, make students think critically and empowering them and making them unlazy. And often they want the lazy thing, right? They want to be told the equivalent of how to have sex, right? So that's what's so striking about that student. She doesn't imagine a possibility on which she could figure it out on her own with someone else. Mm. Yeah, so I wonder, so, I mean, one answer to your question is, well, you could have a form of sex education which had, which understood education much more broadly, right? Which understood it basically as the sum total of culture, right? So this is a very kind of old school platonic way of thinking about education. So it's not something that happens in a classroom. But even then, I, what, I, what I would dream of would be a, a form of culture that would, just wouldn't tell people how to have sex, but rather would sort of tell people in some sort of sense that, you know, what sex is and what it means is sort of up, up to them. Because I think the problem with teaching sex as opposed to just teaching other things is that you're also training eros, Right. So you're training what turns people on. And those are very deep grooves and they're deeper than just about any grooves that we try and draw in the, in the classroom. And so it's very hard to undo. So making space in sex education for like the exercise of agency, genuine agency, not just people saying yes or no, I think is very difficult. Yeah. I was reading a book this morning that also was published by Bloomsbury, actually, by Caitlin Howlett called Sex Education, mm. Sex Work, and Sexual Violence, which begins by claiming that federally funded programs of sex education almost always involve stigmatizing sex work right. and almost always involve stigmatizing non-normative mm. forms of sexuality and also trade much more on fear and shame than on pleasure. So how should we think about the politics of, say, sex work mm. in tandem with the politics of sexual pedagogy or non-pedagogy? Yeah. I mean, if you wanted a great national sex education program, I would definitely put sex workers in charge of it. I mean, like, you know, I mean, sex workers are some of the most sophisticated thinkers about issues of like consent, pleasure, agency, domination. I mean, like, you know, they think through this stuff in a kind of, in a, in a day-to-day way and have quite radical relation, you know, radical thinking about it. I mean, there's this just kind of general problem in progressive politics where we reach to education as an, as a panacea without, I mean, A, that stops us from thinking about the kind of other structural things that need to change. But we also just forget that education is like, is performed by educators. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> how many of your teachers would you want? Like how many, how many teachers have you come across that you would really entrust to teach your children about sex? I mean, thinking back on your own, on your own. I mean, the answer is zero. Right. I I, I thought you were going to say thinking to my own children. I said absolutely zero. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think it is possible to, you know, draft more creative curriculums and things like that. But there is this kind of like more fundamental problem, which is that we're asking people who are 
products of very much our sexual culture. I mean, if you know, you thinking about male teachers. I mean, I mean, think about how many of them probably just uncritically watch a lot of porn, and then they're supposed to like teach porn literacy to their students. And then there's this further problem, which is that you're supposed to be teaching about texts that you're not legally allowed to show your students, right? Because you can't show them pornography. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical of the possibilities. I'm not saying that sex education couldn't be a lot better. I mean, in the US, for example, abstinence is still very much a, a norm. And that is just a public health disaster because it means that people have sex earlier. They uh, have it unprotected. They have, they tend to have lots of non-consensual sex and so on. So it could be better, but having a kind of sex education that would really be geared towards like a full feminist project of sexual emancipation. Yeah. Yeah. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I, I want to get back to the second essay in that pair on not sleeping with your students. I have a genuine question that I've been thinking about for a while, which is that in many cases where we hear about or read about professors sleeping with their students, there is in addition to an institutional asymmetry of power between them, an age imbalance. Mm. How do we think about age imbalances between people who do not share an institutional hierarchy or space with one another? Mm. How do we think about a 70-year-old man dating a 20-year-old or 25-year-old woman in ways that, on the one hand, do not completely brush off the possibility of age carrying with it some kind of power imbalance, but on the other hand, without being ageist mm. in our assessment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a fully worked out view on this. I think it's a great Great question. I mean, I do think the institutional setting, as you signaled, is, is just a kind of different matter. But when you're just thinking about like out in the real world. Yeah. Um, so one thing to say is that. I, I, I genuinely don't have an answer no, no, to this, no, by I, the way. No, it's no, just no. something that actually just really yeah. interests me and I'm not sure how, yeah. to, how to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, McKinnon, coming back to her, you know, as someone who you would think would be extremely skeptical of these kinds of, of these kinds of situations, these kinds of relationships, I mean, has this wonderful line in a recent article, which I'm about to butcher, where she roughly says something like, Look, it's, it's possible for two people divide, like who, who, you know, sit on the opposite sides of like a power division to like together with a lot of like 
effort and hope and she says fly by the moon, you know, optimism, like have relationships that are like truly egalitarian and like loving and mutual. And she says, of course, (laughs) this sounds like a lot of hard work and it is, but it's only hard work because of our current like political circumstances, you know, come the feminist revolution, like those kinds of things should be possible. So (sighs) this is to say that like, I think in some sense, I, in a, in a kind of feminist utopia age really wouldn't matter very much. But very often, as we know, what's happening there is certain kind of predatory behavior, which doesn't necessarily involve non-consensual sex at all. I think like consent is actually a fairly easy bar to meet. Often what's going on though is, you know, usually men, not always though, going after people that they where they know that that inequality in age is precisely the mechanism that allows the relationship to work and that and it wouldn't and there wouldn't be consent if it weren't for that. And the question I always want to ask is just like, well, why does that turn you on? Mm. I think, you know, and it's not really a moral question. It's not really a condemnation. It's just kind of a critical question. Like, is that the kind of person you want to be? Is that how you want to relate to the world? There's something different, I think, often going on in the case of like the 80-year-old or the 70-year-old and the 20-year-old, which is a certain kind of mercenary trade on both sides, right? Because presumably the 70-year-old is like very rich and this 20-year-old is very like young and beautiful and that there is a kind of you know, economic trade going on there. Not necessarily. I want to get back to that critical question, though, because I'm fascinated by it. Why does that turn you on? Is that an answer we can always, is that a question we can always answer? No. Isn't isn't sometimes the answer to what turns us on just because? (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, I think sometimes that's the best we can we can do, right? Because the moment we're talking about desire, we're talking about the unconscious, and you know, I, I, it's slightly fallen out of favor in contemporary feminism, in part because the appeal to the conscious unconscious has the potential to kind of excuse everyone and everything, and that can sit uncomfortably with the demand for kind of feminist justice. But at the same time, I think we inescapably deal with like we inescapably come up against, you know, the extent to which we're just totally unknown to ourselves or make sense of ourselves in ways that are forms of mythologizing and self-mythologizing. Yeah, so criticality doesn't have to and maybe won't end up result in self-knowledge. But it at least allows us to think more dialectically yes. rather than dualistically yes. about these, about sex. Right. And the dialectic thing is interesting because that would be a conversation you would ideally be having inside that partnership, right? Right. So it's like you can pose it to the other person. Like, why do you think I'm, <laughs> why do you think this turns me on? Is that a problem? Okay. okay. I, have an, I have an activity to do tonight. Great. Thank you for that. So coming toward the end of our conversation, I want to return to the question that I started with, which was, do we have a right to sex? And I want to ask a slightly different version of that question, which is, do we have a right to good sex? Mm. Or rather, what role is there for pleasure to play in the politics of fuckability? Mm. Or is pleasure simply too individualistic a phenomenon to mobilize for any kind of collective or social thinking about desire? Now, I really want to insist that there is a kind of socialist version of pleasure seeking. And there's a great tradition of that, of course. Uh, Marcuse comes to mind most obviously, but, you know, socialist feminists like Colin Tai, but also like some like Silvia Federici. I mean, these were all, for, for them, 
pleasure and sexual pleasure specifically, but pleasure more generally, the pleasures we get from like, you know, eating and drinking and art and uh, leisure has to be central to any kind of socialist utopian project. The, the focus on pleasure, I think, becomes worryingly individualistic when the pursuit of pleasure becomes understood as like part of what it is to be like a fully accomplished neoliberal subject. Right. So you've got to be, you know, beautiful and thin and successful and have this great Instagram account. And you have to be like having great sex. Like that is, that's oppressive. Right. Um, and, but the demand that there's like room for pleasure in life, including the room for sexual pleasure, I think should be a socialist demand. Getting back to the question of pedagogy, something you and I have spoken about previous to this is about the the differentiation between the pedagogical and the experiential. Mm. And often you have an idea from various forms of cultural representation what sexual pleasure is going to be like. For some of our students, that's from pornography. For me, it was from reading too much D.H. Lawrence at an early age. And, <laughs> but, but in fact, it's the experiential that agitates mm. against what you've learned from other people's representations. So I guess the question that I'm asking is, how does one learn about pleasure? Mm. And is this a those who can't do teach kind of <laughs> kind kind of question that I'm asking? I'm not sure. Yeah. How does one learn about pleasure? I mean, I do think this idea of pleasure as pushing back against what has been taught is absolutely right. And I think that's a central thought in queer politics as well, right? This idea that your des- desires that no matter how kind of repressed and sublimating can kind of push through and push against what you've been sort of normatively taught is is desirable. And as a result, pleasure can be this kind of quite politically radical and emancipatory thing. But then of course it has this interesting relationship with pedagogy because what you take pleasure in can itself be shaped and is in fact shaped. And part of what we try and do in the classroom is is teach people how to have access to what we're not no longer supposed to call the higher pleasures, mm. right? Um, the pleasures of like reading Lawrence, although those are sometimes quite base. <laughs> so we keep being dialectical right. yes. okay i think Sorry. that's a, no that's don't apologize i think that's usually the correct answer mm. to many things so mm. i think that's a good place to leave off thank you so much for joining me today again the book is the right to sex and it is out now and it is absolutely brilliant thank you thank you what are you doing right now Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today.
Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.